Hey, everybody out there on the So We Speak Patreon. We are doing something special this week. Instead of doing a written now reading, I thought I would just spend some time with one of my favorite readers, Terry Fakes. And the two of us would do a now reading discussion together. So we will be linking to these articles and podcasts, books, whatever ends up coming up in a post on this, but I uh, hope you enjoy this in a little bit different format this week. So usually what I do on these, I, I know you've probably read a couple of these, usually what I do is just give the things that I've been reading that I thought were interesting, uh-huh. kind of the best reads on the internet or listens on the internet. So kick us off, what's what's uh, something that you recommend this week? Well, I know that uh, most of our listeners are uh, podcast listeners and article readers. And yeah, so if you're listening to this, chances are you chance. are a podcast listener. <laughs> I guess that might have been uh, Captain Obvious there, wasn't it? Uh, I My choices this week are, first one is a podcast that I like. I don't listen to everything on this podcast. Uh-huh. It is the Great Books Podcast by National Review. The host is John Miller, mm-hmm. whom I know you like and I do as well. He is with Hillsdale College. And he basically has conversations with various people about a book. And he will talk about why do you think this is a great book. And it's a great discussion about the book. And if you haven't read something, great place to go to see whether you would like to read it. Does it have the themes? So I know you've also listened to this. Yeah, I really like this podcast a lot. And he does a good job of giving different guests on there. I think... The, the unfortunate thing about that podcast is the old ones are not on there anymore. But mm. the first one they did was on Macbeth, maybe. But they did Lord of the Rings pretty quickly after that. Uh-huh. They've done the Iliad. They've done the Odyssey. But in the last few, I I really liked the Maltese Falcon. I had never even heard of that book until they did it, and it was kind the of a Dashiell Hammett, yeah, uh, you know, Private Eye yeah. genre. It, it, I read it many years ago. Actually, I read a lot in that genre and love that that mm-hmm. hard boiled detective genre. Yeah, and uh, that's that's great. You can also see the movie. Which right. is was pretty well done in my mm-hmm. view, but you're right. It probably got you interested in that. It did, and that's really one of the great things about that podcast is it will expose you to some books that you've never read, and even if you don't read them, like I haven't read that book now, but at least I enjoyed hearing about it. Mm-hmm. I I have an eye to look out for it if I see it at a one dollar used bookstore. <laughs> you probably will. I might pick it up, but. Um, the other thing I really like about that podcast is that it focuses on great books. Mm-hmm. Now. It doesn't focus on the great books, although they do some of the great books. But uh, you might tell the distinction there: the great books, the great books. I really kind of wish they would do a podcast on the great books as a curriculum, because I know Hillsdale does do some great books courses, and the great books are a collection of the greatest literature and most important works that have been published in i think they start with plato i believe that's maybe right maybe they start with the pre-socratics i can't remember i don't know if there's anything older we, than that we like, have I, the I don't great books have. in print in our at our house mm-hmm. because we didn't ask you guys when you were growing up to read all of the great books but for example all of you did debate which mm-hmm. we kind of mandated you do at least one year Speech and debate, and the their volume on the political philosophers, yeah, is an excellent volume out of the great books that yeah. you all wanted to read once you got into debate, and it right. got you into the foundation of ideas. But but yeah, they have philosophy, they have politics, they have literature, literature of every kind. Um, great, the great books are, are amazing. I, yeah, one of the things I really wish is that more schools would teach 
the great books in high school. A lot of colleges will do your first year instead of doing kind of mind-numbing gen eds. They'll put small liberal arts colleges will put their students through the great books program, or at least part of it. I don't part know if it. you can read all of them in, in a year, but right. Um, but th- they do some of the great books. But the, the podcast called the Great Books Podcast. So, for example, I'm going to mention two here that are recent. I mm-hmm. believe that you could just go get both of these right now, and neither of these are in the great books. The first one I had not read. This is a book from the '50s called The Conservative Mind mm-hmm. by Russell Kirk. Yes, they in the podcast they use the Conservative Mind that book in the '50s, which laid out what is political conservatism. Mm -hmm. And it was a great discussion around the difference between what is political conservatism versus political conservatives today. I found that, uh, as a matter of fact, I picked it up as a result of that and thought that would be a great foundational reading in political conservatism in America. I'm trying to think of who it is, but so Moeller's podcast, Thinking in Public, that he does about once a month, there's an episode that's on that book. Okay, It's not Russell Kirk, obviously, that's on there, but I can't remember who he had on there. We'll put a link to it. But that book is is really fantastic. That interview with, with Miller is really good. And Moeller's thinking in public on that book is really good as well. Um, it's, it's definitely one to look into. Yeah. The thinking in public, I think that you're talking about, is a conversation with David French. Is that the one that they talk about that? It's uh, American Conservatism, Past and Present, a conversation with David French, who wrote a book called that. And I believe he references... That's the most recent one. That is. And it may not be the one you're thinking of, but they do reference the conservative mind. Either way, that's a great... That's another great podcast to listen to. It is a great one. So the conservative mind, political. My second one, which is also recent, it's still in my list of podcasts, so if you want to listen to it, is The Clouds. By Aristophanes. Oh, I've listened to this one. So my my teacher that I took Greek from originally at OSU is Dr. Epstein is an Aristophanes scholar. Yes, that's his. That's what his dissertation is in. That's his area of interest. So, it, as as a course of uh, like mandatory prerequisites for his <laughs> classes, you had to read several Aristophanes plays. Clouds being one of the funnier ones. Clouds right. is. Making fun of Socrates is mm-hmm. essentially what the play is about. There right. are several good plays by Aristophanes um, and worth reading. Frogs is probably my favorite by him. Uh-huh. But the discussion they have on that podcast about clouds is really insightful because you get two birds with one stone. You get Aristophanes and what he was really trying to do as a comic poet. Poet, uh-huh. But then you also get a great background on Socrates and how he was portrayed kind of in pop culture of the day. Exactly. And and the reason I like it is I'm not saying you will do that. You will pick up the play and read it in either English or Greek. Mm-hmm. But what a great discussion to just enlarge your mind about Aristophanes and mm-hmm. one of the great Greek poets. It has that kind of scope to it as a podcast. So those are the two recently that I might commend to people to listen to. And they probably will uh, get a feel for it. Well, on that topic, I'd, I'd recommend an article called... I think it's called The Reading Life, and it's hmm. by Joseph Epstein. He's an essayist. He's written big collections of uh, short essays. Really reviews, good writer. As very I good writer. This is in First Things from last month. And basically what he talks about is why be a reader and how. So, you know, he, he tackles what I think is one of the most probably one of the most prominent obstacles to reading, which is 
well, a lot of the stuff that people say I should read is boring. Right. You know, for example, I want to do a, a podcast at some point. Maybe we'll do this uh, on So We Speak about about the anti-library, which is the <laughs> books that you have that you haven't read. And he, his point is, look, there's no pressure to read books just for the sake of having read them. He said, read the things that you enjoy. Reading in and of itself is an enjoyable activity. Yes. So don't worry about if you remember everything that you read. Nobody remembers everything that they read. Right. Don't don't worry about if you finish every book that you start. Nobody finishes every book that they start. Pick up books and, and read them to the extent that they entertain you and you enjoy them and you feel like you're gaining something by reading them. <laughs> and so he's He's a guy that's read a lot of books. There's a lot of good book recommendations in there, but a lot of them are really obscure because he just likes obscure stuff. He likes to wander into a used bookstore and see what looks good and then take home a couple of books and read them. And, and maybe a chapter in, you find out they're not that good. And at that point, you know, you've wasted $2 and you use it, you know, as a doorstop after that. Or <laughs> right. Something. But I liked his, it's kind of a meditation on what does it mean to be a reader? Why, why is the reading life attractive. It's yes. a very enjoyable article. It is. Speaking of articles, uh, my second is an article, not a podcast. It is very short, very well done. It's one of the Gospel Coalition articles written by a guy named John Nielsen, who's a, he's been a youth pastor. He's a senior pastor now. It's called Why Youth Stay in the Church When They Grow Up. Hmm. It's three reasons that he gives as he observes both his experience and as an observer of what are the three things that cause kids to stay in the church when they grow up. It's a short read, and uh, I think people will do well to follow the link when you put it out there and read it. I think it's an eye-opener. It goes contrary, as you might expect, to the popular movements in youth ministry over the past 30 years. But then Mm -hmm. again, if you look at the statistics, we haven't been very successful at yeah. keeping kids in the faith uh, afterwards. And he has three reasons that I think you'll resonate with. But I don't know if anybody has really the courage to say, you know what, I think we'll build our student ministry around these ideas. It'll be mm-hmm. thought-provoking at the very least. Yeah. Well, that's one I'll have to have to check out. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely interested in any way to retain youth, especially in college and after college. Um, and you know, that starts with what you teach them when they're kids, what you teach them in middle school. Um, people pretend like a year of apologetics or something in their senior year is going to keep kids in their faith long after they leave. And while I would never discourage anybody oh, from doing it's a great idea. A Absolutely. Year of apologetics, the major battles for, um, church attendance and even more importantly for the souls of young people are not won and lost over apologetics. Right. They're won and lost by the habits of the heart and the genuineness of their faith and the comfortability they have with the community of people at their church when they're kids and as they grow up. And you'll see, I won't give you the three reasons because it really is a short read, but one of them is obviously exactly what you're talking about, what happens at, at home and the and what is talked about mm-hmm. with them at church. Definitely. My third article is completely different tack. This is by one of my favorite authors, Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger is someone with whom, obviously we're completely out of the Christian realm now. It's someone with whom I do not entirely agree, but he is a good writer and his ideas are powerful. Whether or not you agree with his ideas, they're powerful ideas. This is an article out of the Atlantic called How the Enlightenment Ends. Oh, yeah. And it's Henry Kissinger basically talking about artificial intelligence. 
Yeah, I've read this article. It's back from it's like from May of two thousand eighteen. Yeah, it's not insightful. really recent, but very insightful really article. insightful. Very, he's a good writer, and uh, he will engage your mind and get you thinking. Yeah, you know he's coming under discussion, under fire, whatever you want to say, because the the things that he did in China, mm-hmm. the way that they decided that they were going to orient the United States to China is the foundation for some of the things that the Trump administration is dealing with now with China. Right. And so if you want to look at kind of the historical trajectory of China to get to where it was, I mean, Henry Kissinger is your guy. And because of that, he's come under fire recently. But but what I think is it's important to resurrect some of the founding principles of what he thought we were trying to do right. in China in order to understand where we are right now. Yeah, his he is a... Uh, a political realist. He is very interested in the balance of power. He is a product of Bismarck and that era. In fact, I believe that was his dissertation was on uh, Bismarck. But he very much understands the world as a balance of power. You may or may not agree with that. In fact, his ideas are out of favor now. Right. And yet, they were very effective at the time. He wrote, if you're interested in China, by the way, he wrote a book called On China, mm-hmm. and it is a very educated, in-depth look at China. He does not believe China is nearly as powerful as they appear to be, but obviously he spent most of his career balancing Russia, China, and the United States in a balance of power that would not allow anyone other than the United States to yeah. be uh, Supreme. Well, and I think that's as important today as it was 40 years ago. Absolutely. And those are still the major world powers that we're talking about at this point. In fact, I read an article yesterday. It might have been a National Review, but I can't, I can't remember where it was from. But they were talking about the future management of China will be managing the decline of China. It's mm. where now the biggest threat, I think, in the mind of the Trump administration, it should be a threat in the mind of everyone. But if you're really, really, really anti-Trump, you will go ahead and dismiss your misgivings for a moment so that mm-hmm. you can stay anti-Trump. But the, the the major caution I think everyone is having right now is, is an even more powerful China a good thing for the world? Right. Is a Chinese economy that surpasses the United States and in a lot of ways is a rival superpower to the United States and the world a good thing for the world? Is it a good thing for America? And what they're saying is the the say what you will about the trade war and the effectiveness of the trade war, but will foreign policy evolve to a sense of we're actually going to have the opposite problem if we go too far? There's an equilibrium point for China. Right. Too powerful is not in the best interest of the United States. Not powerful enough or a, a gigantic Chinese recession. Not in the best interest of the United States or right. the rest of the world. And who better to frame up this conversation than Kissinger? He also, if you again, if you're really interested in the China thing, he participated in the Monk debates, and the question was, you can find this probably on the internet. It the question was, will China dominate the 21st century? I mm-hmm. do not remember who he debated, but it's well done. It's very short, mm-hmm. worth writing. This article, however, uh, how the Enlightenment ends is talking about artificial intelligence, and he spent a lot of time researching it, talking to a lot of people. I think that artificial intelligence is going to change our culture more than anything that we have seen to date. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say more than the Internet. It is going to have some in-your-face, in real-life, political, economic, 
upheaval in our mm-hmm. country if we are not wise in how we deal with the uh, oncoming onslaught mm-hmm. of artificial intelligence. It has the pos- potential, and I think he talks about this, to divide our nation very starkly into the haves and the have-nots. Mm-hmm. And that is not going to be a good thing. I mean, it is a dangerous yeah, thing. Yeah, if I remember that article correctly, one of the points he makes is if you think that the Silicon Valley bubble was bad, right. and you think that wealth disparity was bad amongst tech executives, wait until AI comes into full bloom. And the part where he gets the title from about the Enlightenment is AI, the, big, the biggest potential of AI is to change the way that human beings are humans. Yes. The, the point of AI is not necessarily the conversations we're having now, which is, is it going to take jobs away from truckers? Is it going to clear out our factories? You know, is it going to take over working class jobs? That's true. Mm-hmm. And that's a good discussion to have. But the big discussions are what tech companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon are doing, which is, can you use artificial intelligence to rewire and... Um, and uh, synthesize the human brain. Right. Could Amazon put a chip in the back of your head to where instead of telling your uh, Alexa or your smart device that you want to buy something, can you just think about it and it will buy something? And beyond that, what Facebook is doing with uh, behavior control, so they're conditioning you on their app to do certain things, to be addicted to certain things, if they're able to do that kind of experimentation and they're able to augment humanity with AI, then what will the future of humanity actually be? That is not a, I'd like to go back to a more mundane conversation in just a second and tie this into something Jordan Peterson is talking about. But so while we stay on this wavelength, think about it this way. When you are in relationship with someone, it molds the the person you become. Well, obvious example is you're married, you have a spouse. Over time, you influence one another and your very personality, your nature gets affected. Artificial intelligence doesn't have to be human, but if it is, quote, human enough for you to interact with it, Mm -hmm. and we're getting close to that, it will then begin to change how you interrelate with the mm-hmm. world. So when you say changing the nature of what it is to be human, that sounds like a grandiose claim, but it's not nearly as grandiose as you think. Mm-hmm. Well, when you get into, I think the, the, the last thing I'll say on this, the most important concept in AI in my mind is the ethics of AI. And it's completely flying under the radar. So people think that technology is an amoral business. It's just, it is what it is. And we're coming to find out that it's actually not because we've got Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and uh, Sheryl Sandberg testifying in Washington, D.C. In fact, it came out yesterday that Jack Dorsey lied the entire time he was there about what they were doing with information, who they're blocking, political affiliation and not. And however that turns out, I don't know, but however that turns out, you can't say at this point that tech companies don't have a moral stance and a moral obligation and aren't endeavoring to do things that are inherently moral. And the question is, are they moral or immoral? And the funny thing is, if you think about the future of AI and the importance of morality, tech companies are not the ones that I want deciding the morality of the future human beings. They've proven themselves to not be very moral. I don't think anybody in the country 
thinks that Mark Zuckerberg is a very moral person. I don't think anybody wants him making decisions over the future of morality in America. But as long as they avoid the narrative that they're doing moral things, that they're the new moral arbiters of of American society, they're able to do whatever they want. It's a complete stealth campaign. I agree. I will tell you there's an opportunity here, and you and I should seize it. Uh, There are going to be two areas that explode out of this, either books that that hit the sci-fi people and say, Terminator was right and Mm -hmm. Skynet is about to happen, or the apocalyptic Christian movement. I say we jump in on the apocalyptic Christian movement and talk about the uh, AI is going to be... The, the, uh, the next series of Left Behind books. Is the next series of be Left written. Behind. Why not Wait, us? Waiting to be written. Hey, can I do one little thing on that in terms of AI? I know this is going longer than you in, in, uh, thought that it would, but Jordan Peterson is talking about something uh, that is... Uh, he had a great discussion about intelligence, which is his field. And he talked about people with an IQ of less than 85, Mm -hmm. which is arguably 10 to 15% of the population, no longer has any useful job to do. In other words, the military says, you know what, we actually don't have anything you can do Mm -hmm. if your IQ is less than 85. And he talked about, it's kind of stark now in an information age, what will we do with 10 to 15% of the population who literally we don't have a job for you. We can't mm-hmm. even make a job for you. Now, jump to AI. I'm going to extend this a little bit. AI says it doesn't matter whether your IQ is 85 or less. If you don't have certain level of skills, we literally no longer have a job for you in our economy. Mm-hmm. What if, and this is what I think some forward-thinking politicians are looking at, what if 50% of our population, because of AI, we actually don't have a job for you. It'll be cataclysmic, I think, on a financial. Yeah, and you know Jordan Peterson has taken a lot of heat for talking about this, and uh, Charles Murray, who's done a lot of research on this, has taken a lot of heat for this. Right. Um, especially when you talk about IQ and race, you're guaranteed to be right. destroyed in the public square. But there is something to be said for for sounding the alarm on the impact that. Uh, AI is going to have on especially segments of population where a machine can easily reproduce what that person does. And the question is, and this will be really interesting to see how our culture navigates this, is, is a person defined by their usefulness? Exactly. That's a moral question. As Christians, we don't care what your IQ is. We don't care what you are able to bring to society. We don't care um, whether or not you can be replaced by a machine in the way that you function from 8 to 5 every day because we believe in the dignity of human beings over and above the most powerful machine in the world. Right. So for us, if it's the choice between a person who has an IQ of zero and IBM's Watson, we pick the human right? because we believe that they're different. And an, an infinite amount of robot intelligence can never attain to the dignity of one human being because we believe all human beings are created in the image of God. Right. That'll be really interesting in our society because our society doesn't share that commitment. That's right. We don't believe in the dignity of human beings. We don't believe that you're more than your usefulness to society. And it will be interesting to see what society does when it comes time to make some crucial decisions about the advancement of technology at the expense of some of society's least privileged members. That's true. Let me clarify one thing. I was using the IQ of less than 85 as simply a way to highlight the economic impacts. And when I say AIs will extend that, I'm not talking about putting people out of work because they're dumb or their IQ is too low. I'm simply saying that 
AI will magnify that problem by bringing the level of skills that are needed to participate up to, to that point. But back to what you're saying, the utilitarian view of people, you already see it creeping into our society. I'm going to argue that abortion and euthanasia Mm-hmm. At both ends of the human life spectrum, I believe those are being driven by a utilitarian ideology of human existence. I don't. If we look at a future that's utilitarian, I think you're going to see a lot of promises of great things happening, but I believe it's going to be a nightmare. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, on a slightly lighter note, <laughs> one of the, yeah, back to the thing. What are one you of reading? the articles that I wanted to? Uh, recommend this week is called The Steward of Middle Earth. Hmm. It's a it's a little, I mean, probably a 10-minute read, but it's a bio of Christopher Tolkien and the role that he has played as the steward, as the, the curator, as the, the steward of his father's... literary executor of his father's literary corpus. And he has spent 50 years producing, packaging, editing crafting the tales of Middle-earth beyond the Lord of the Rings. One thing a lot of people don't know is the the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit are, are a small, a fraction of the Lord of the Rings corpus. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people that are familiar with Tolkien are familiar with the Cimmerillion. Right. Well, the Cimmerillion was never published by J.R.R. Tolkien. Right. It was his son who came along afterwards and and collated everything and put it together and published that. Now you have, I think it's like 11 volumes of the history of Middle-earth that he's Mm -hmm. put together. And what the article is highlighting is that he kind of stepped into the Inklings when he was like 22 years old because he was at Oxford, he was writing, he was creative. And so when it came to um, Tolkien and Lewis and, and their group, Christopher really became part of that group. And so now, as, as he's entering the end of his life, um, it's the last of the Inklings. It's, it's kind of the end of an era. And what the author of the article does a really good job of is not only telling the history of how Christopher Tolkien became who he is today and what he's done, but also the way that he himself has participated in the Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. series in the, in the myth of it. And I think the reason this came out now is because the last Tolkien book just came out. Mm. It's called The Fall of Gondolin. And Christopher Tolkien has resigned now as the as the president of the Tolkien estate. Mm-hmm. And he's retired now at age, I think he's like 94. Um, he's retired. He's going to enjoy himself. But uh, <laughs> he, he put out more more works than his father did. Probably J.R.R. Tolkien would be a fraction as well known if it weren't for his faithful son, Stewart, and his stuff. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.